Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today we have Trina Sideros with us, who leads HRI's Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina. Thanks, Ben. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I was going to say, it's it's been a few weeks since we've been on, which was a nice break. But uh, while everyone was having holidays and on break, it appears that uh, things were happening in Washington, D.C. And we actually have a, a stimulus bill, right? We do. A 6,000-page stimulus bill, in fact. Exactly. And I know you've, you, you've read every page of that for our listeners and have <laughs> boiled it all, all down. So we'll walk through a few things in the stimulus bill that we think are going to be important for healthcare providers. But as you alluded to, Trina, it's a big bill, and there will probably be people analyzing it, including us, for weeks to come. But we can at least give a top line of what's in there and what it may mean for hospitals, health systems, and and physicians. So with that, why don't we jump into it? And I think there's one issue that has been on the mind of not just health leaders, but consumers, and that's the issue of surprise medical bills. Could you talk to us a little bit about what we expect from that bill regarding surprise medical billing? Yeah, yeah. So this is an issue that has dogged consumers for years, and this is when you you go in for perhaps you're at the emergency room or you have a procedure and it turns out that the care was provided by a clinician that's not in your network. And so you receive a bill that is for an amount that is surprising, surprisingly high usually, and you almost have no recourse really for it. So let's say you end up at the emergency room while you're on vacation, you might be billed an enormous amount for that visit. And so this has been a problem for a while. And states have stepped in and done various levels of trying to address this. But states can only do so much. And what they, the kinds of legislation that they can pass only affects certain health plans, not all of them. And so here we have in this stimulus bill, a solution at the federal level. So that's that's quite a big deal. And it's something that we were sort of a little skeptical that would happen because it requires lawmakers to settle an intra-industry squabble between payers and providers. And they did it. So we have a, a surprise billing solution. Yeah. And I think that's a great point you, you bring up, which is this was really an intra-industry squabble. And that brings us to the solution as well. And part of the solution to surprise billing in the stimulus bill is actually bringing both parties to the table to resolve the issue of what's you know actually being charged versus what's going to be ultimately paid. Could you talk to us about what that process looks like? So there are two there are kind of two categories in the bill for out of network emergency medical care and some ancillary services provided by out of network providers at in network facilities. So this might be an out of network anesthesiologist who does the anesthesia for you when you're getting an operation at an in network hospital and for out of network non emergency care provided without the patient's informed consent. So for that kind of grouping of care, patients 
are required to pay in-network cost-sharing only. So the patients are basically shielded from any balance billing from receiving those surprise medical bills. And the violations are fairly, are, are subject to up to $10,000 in federal civil penalties per violation. For non-emergency care, patients have to be told ahead of time what it would cost them and they have to give their consent. So say you want to go to an orthopedic surgeon, say, at an out-of-network hospital, they have to go and make sure that you understand what it will cost you and that you consent to do that. So those are the two kind of groupings here. Now, the question then is, okay, so you have a patient who gets care from someone who's not in network, and this is not one of those cases where the patient has consented, then what? How does the payer and the provider settle on an amount? And so there are two paths. One is they work it out, they negotiate. And if they cannot negotiate and come to a settlement that everyone agrees to, then they can go to an arbitration process. And that process is laid out in this bill in a lot of detail. So it's called independent dispute resolution. And what happens is you find the two parties find an independent arbitrator and they both submit information and basically a bid for what they think they should be paid or pay for the services. And then the arbitrator picks one or the other. There are some measures in the bill that prevent providers from going to arbitration all the time, which is one of the worries that that will just be sort of the go-to process. And so the, the legislation really is pressuring providers to settle and to work it out with payers and leave the consumers out of it. And so that is the solution. And we'll see how it works out over the next couple of years. It starts as of January 1st, 2022. So they have a year to sort of figure all this out, create all the processes, and then um, put it into action. Well, that could be some great news for consumers, actually. And I think the other the other interesting subject in this bill is around price transparency, which is something I know we've been talking about and covering for years. And certainly consumers want it, employers want it, more transparency in hospital and physician prices. At a high level, what, what are we seeing in this bill that relates to that? Yeah, so we have seen a lot of regulation out of CMS around pushing payers and providers to start making public prices that are attached to services and and procedures. And here we see this another step in law. In the stimulus bill, providers are required to provide, quote, good faith estimates of the total expected charges for scheduled items or services, including any expected ancillary services, with a health plan if the patient is insured or if the individual is uninsured. And that is effective January 1st, 2022. It's unclear in the language of the of the legislation whether these estimates must be provided upon the patient's request or for every scheduled service. But this is part of a piece that the federal government is pushing to get prices that consumers actually will pay out from behind the wall that is there that makes it very difficult for all of us to understand what something might cost ahead of time, to plan for it. And then once we do receive a bill to understand how that bill was calculated. And so we've seen this push from the Trump administration in particular over the last couple of years. And this stimulus bill really codifies another step toward that. 
Well, I think you were bringing up the key point that has been the challenge over the years, and that is pricing transparency in healthcare actually hasn't helped much because often the the costs that people see as a consumer are charges, and they're actually not what you know, maybe an insurance company has negotiated to pay or large employers negotiated to pay. And so this, if implemented as is, might provide much more transparency in terms of really what purchasers are are paying for these services. So quite a bit of change there. There's a lot here where it comes to provider relief funds and changes to payments and things like that. And I don't know that we're going to have time to go into all of that. There's a, a huge amount to kind of get through there. But suffice to say, providers are getting some relief and just wanted to see, Trina, if there were a couple of highlights in terms of some of that budget and relief that they'll be getting over the next while. Yeah, yeah. So the stimulus bill does contain another $3 billion in provider relief funds, which is welcome, you know, to all providers, especially right now where we have providers that are having to cancel non-emergent services and procedures because of the pandemic. And so we see kind of replay in some places of the liquidity crisis that dogged a lot of providers at the beginning of the pandemic. And so this is a welcome thing to see in the stimulus bill. Also, we know that there's a lot of money sitting out there that has not been dispersed from the first time around. So I think there's about $24.5 billion in provider relief funds that HHS still has to give out. And so we should see, I think, in the next couple of weeks, further disbursements to healthcare providers, which will be quite welcome. Health and Human Services said in the middle of December that it is planning to do this, to disperse this money. And so I think we'll see um, this relief come in the next couple of weeks. You know, the other area of, of new relief and funding is around COVID-19. And this bill also has some additional funding there. What should we expect in terms of what the health industry will get and be able to do with some of this new COVID funding? Yeah, so there is some money in there in the bill for COVID-19. There is more money for testing and contact tracing, about $25 billion for that. And that can be used to scale up academic, public health, and hospital labs to conduct surveillance and contact tracing. So that's a welcome bolus of money. There's also another $1.25 billion in NIH funding for research and clinical trials into the long-term effects of COVID-19 and for the rapid acceleration of diagnostics. And that is also very welcome. And one of the things that the Biden administration has talked a lot about is scaling up diagnostics in particular, that we are still not testing as much as we could and should be as a country. And so that money is also going to be put aside for that. And for academic medical centers and for researchers and companies that are working on this, that money should be available to be tapped for grants looking into this. I think one of the big questions is what about the long haulers, the people who have had COVID-19 and have never really recovered. And so I think there's a lot of interest into looking into what's going on with those folks and seeing what can be done to help them. There's also money, about $9 billion for the CDC to support efforts at the federal state, local, territorial, and tribal levels to track the vaccination campaigns and ensure that that there's a broad access to the vaccine. So that also will be helpful. We've heard in the last couple of weeks that
that the states in particular are hurting in terms of, and public health departments are hurting in terms of funding the vaccination campaign. And so this additional money should help with that. So those are the sort of big groupings of additional money for COVID-19. Of course, the bill also includes appropriations for the NIH and for the CDC, and they are, of course, and the FDA, and they are continuing to do work on the pandemic, of course. Well, the pandemic has accelerated a lot of things in our new health economy. It's something that we've written about over the last few months. One of those accelerants is around virtual health and telemental health is actually addressed in this bill. So could you tell us a little bit about what's going to happen with telemental health services as well? Yeah, yeah. Actually, there's a a good amount, I mean, relative to the 6,000 pages on behavioral health in general in this bill, including telemental health services. So one of the pieces is that it expands access to telemental health services beyond the expiration of the pandemic, the COVID-19 public health emergency. And so this is one of the things that we talked about in HRI. One of the pieces of the pandemic changes that we expect to see continue on beyond the pandemic, and here we see it happening in law. So we see this happening. Also, the stimulus bill expands Medicare telehealth services to allow beneficiaries to receive mental health services via telehealth if the beneficiary has seen in person at least once the therapist, the qualifying practitioner during the six months before the telehealth service. So basically, as long as you've seen your your therapist or your psychologist, your psychiatrist once in person, you can continue on via telehealth and the reimbursement will come from Medicare. So that is also another good step forward. And I think we will see a great need for this coming up. We know one of the big aspects of the pandemic has been the terrible effects on people's mental health. And we expect that will continue on past the the public health emergency. And so the need for this access, the expanded access via telehealth, via in-person, any which way is really welcome. So that's in the stimulus bill as well. Well, there's not many people that could break down uh, 6,000 pages into a less than 15-minute podcast, but you have exceeded expectations once again, Trina. Um, We will note (laughs) that this is a, a lot of this analysis is just on the implications for providers. Certainly, there are implications for payers and, and pharma life sciences companies as well, and we will uh, address those in the in a future podcast. I would also note that right before the break in December, we launched our Top Health Industry Issues of 2021 report, and that is now available on our website. We take a hard look at what the future of healthcare is going to look like over the next year for all parts of the ecosystem, large employers, hospitals and health systems, pharma companies, insurers, and others. And it's a great read. And you can find it out on our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. So with that, Trina, thank you so much. I'm glad you had a good break and I'm glad you're back with us and keeping up with all the new laws. Thanks for having me. And that's another edition of Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.